I was going to start with a kid's story and have all the kids come up front, but I think they're all taking their dads out to Father's Day. We do have Josiah here. Hopefully this will speak to the kid in all of us. So I composed a short kid's story as a, a little window on this sermon. There once was a boy named Carl. Uh, His last name was Carlson, and he had uh, siblings, uh, Carla and Carlos and Carlotta. Um, I don't know why parents do that, but some of them do. My my aunts and uncles, you know, there's Leilani Liu is one of my aunts, and Penelope Pearl. There's just this sort of thing with parents that sometimes they like alliteration, Uh, so... Carl grew up with Carla and Carlotta and Carlos, and Carl had such a sweet disposition in life. He saw the bright side of everything. You know, even when bad things happen, Carl had a great attitude. So, like, he was climbing a tree, trying to show off, and he fell and uh, broke his collarbone. But he's like, well, look on the bright side. I'm learning that I shouldn't show off. He he could see some value in all things. He loaned his very favorite Lego set to a friend, and the friend lost the Lego set. And Carl was like, well, you know, look on the bright side. I've got lots of toys I've not played with because of my obsession with the Legos. So, like, you're helping me rediscover the joy of these other toys. That was just how Carl was. One day, the devil wrote a book of all the evil things that had been done on earth, particularly focused on God's people, but a record of all the wicked things done on planet earth was written by the devil in a book. He was going to have that published and sent out to everyone in the world. On his way to the printer, he was confronted by an angel who took the book and threw it into a fire. It was the only copy. The book burned, and the devil blew on the fire, and the smoke and the ashes blew out across the earth. And as people breathed in the air of that smoke, it uh, made them sick. It poisoned them. The devil thought this is even better. Well, a little ash from that burning book, the book of the world, the book of all the evil in the world, blew into Carl's eye. And after that, he could only see what was wrong with people and what was wrong with the world because of the ash that was in his eye. He went to church and he began to see people as hypocrites. Well, these people talk about not stealing, but, you know, they they steal. They have their own version of stealing. All he could see when he looked out on the congregation was hypocrisy. And uh, his little sister, Carla, couldn't pronounce her L's. She would say Carwa and Carwos. 
You talk like a baby. Stop talking like a baby, he said. That's all he could see was that she was underdeveloped in her speech. It was partly true. It just broke Carla's heart. So he quit going to church because it was full of hypocrites. And he left his family. He just could not see any good in his family and his parents. After a while... Carl began to get lonely. No one wanted to hang out with Carl because all he saw was the bad in stuff and the bad in the world and the bad in people. And he began to weep from loneliness. He, he began to desire not to see the bad in all things. And so he felt deeply sorry and began crying. And out of his remorse for how he saw things and his weeping, the ash was flushed out of his eye. And he could see again as he used to and went around and apologized to his family and to others for the ways in which he had just looked at them through the uh, infection of the ash from the book of the world that the devil had written. That's my kid's story. Um, I have to admit, (laughs) it's nap time, everybody. Everyone bring your mats. Actually, that's what you do when I'm reading the stories. You lay down and take a nap while Uncle Scott reads the story. I do confess that I made that story up out of this fragment of memory of a story I heard in school when I was a kid. I think... And it wasn't the whole story. It was just a a fraction of a story. I think it is sort of a little bit like the story arc of a Hans Christian Andersen story, The Snow Queen. But again, this is just sort of a fragment of a memory that sort of maybe inspired by, because I couldn't quite remember the story, but sort of had that theme. So just so that I'm not accused of stealing or uh, uh, plagiarism, I think. It's related to something I heard as a kid that I can't quite remember, but had that kind of theme. Uh, So last week, we were looking at the great hymn, the great creed, the great song in uh, in Philippians chapter 2. And Peter taught and invited us to think about that impossible invitation, have that same mind in you that Jesus had, where Though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider that something to be lorded over. He didn't take that and put that over people, but became a servant. And like that, that was the invitation last week. How does that happen? How do we do that? Let's look at Philippians 2. We're going to cover 12 through 18, but let's just look for now at uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So therefore, that is, because I'm calling you to have the mind of Christ, I want you to work out your salvation. How are those connected? I I think what Paul is saying is, As you put this mind 
on that Christ had. It is a form of living out, of working out your salvation. <clears throat> uh, I believe that, that we are not designed primarily for productivity. It's a very poor design, the human being, for productivity in terms of our need for sleep. Like just even taking that into account, not a very good design. You add to that, you know, the Sabbath and all those sort of do-no-work regulations. God is not primarily making you as someone to produce stuff. I think we are primarily designed for relationship. I think the core of our being and our nature is not for productivity, as we've come to understand it, but for relationship. So when Paul's calling us to work out our salvation, I believe Paul recognizes our primary design is relational. Therefore, the primary way that we express our salvation, that we work it out, is in relationship to others. It's this mindset that Christ had that allows us to work out our salvation in our relationship with others. I don't know that it's only within the church. In fact, I don't think it's only within the church. I mean, if we're to have the same mind as Christ, who like his relationships were, were defined by this humility, there was no one that Christ interacted with who had prayed the prayer of penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus' death and resurrection, you know, he hadn't died and resurrected. So his... His working out in relationships were all with what we might consider non-Christians. Surely there were followers and the disciples at a certain point, not early on, I think made that decision, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. But that sort of act of dying and resurrecting hadn't happened. So I think also this mindset that we have, it's, if it's the mindset of Christ, it's also toward those who are not Christian, those who aren't followers, those who don't know Jesus, that humility in relationship. And they may or may not uh, decide to follow Jesus because of that humility. Sometimes I think that productivity mindset, oh, it's got to have this sort of outcome, like being kind to others for the sake of being kind to others has its own glory and fruitfulness especially if <clears throat> you don't speak the same language or, you know, there's, there's not that ability to convey in words why you're doing it. Always have a reason for the hope. Like people ought to see the hope and ask about it and you ought to have a reason for it. That's not always what happens. I remember Heidi went on the global urban trek to Kolkata and her assignment was to work in uh, the home for the sick and the dying in Kolkata, and she wrote this in her journal from that time at the end of a day. I spent a lot of time massaging and oiling bodies, rubbing the tough leathery skin and feeling every bump of every bone because there was no fat or muscle in between. It was horrible. I was just overwhelmed by grief, 
But while I was there, I mostly managed to keep it in. Except when Shad and I were on the roof hanging laundry, I did cry a little. I didn't want to start freaking out there, though, and shoved all the sadness and loneliness and despair and anger and frustration and confusion, just put all of it away. But it's not something I could get rid of for long. Those at home, they can't understand if they haven't seen it. How did things get so bad? How did these women get so bad and no one took care of them before this? Where are their families and friends? It feels so lonely. I'm afraid they think no one loves them. And I wanted so much for them to know that I love them and that Jesus loves them, but I didn't know what to do. I sat next to one woman and just massaged her head and sang to her for 45 minutes. She was so young, not more than 25, and so beautiful. It was so hard at that moment to believe that God is good and that he's there, but I sang worship songs of love and freedom and prayed that even though she didn't understand most of the words, she would somehow feel what I was saying to her. When they brought a dying man into the house, the sister next to me said, here comes Jesus. A little bit of the song that Aggie sang and that we reflected on with regard to Matthew. That act of having the same mindset of Christ, even in a situation where you're not going to be fully understood and you don't have a chance to explain, hey, I'm doing this because of Jesus' love. Just that humility of loving and massaging the bodies of women who are dying, like that's the mindset of Christ that I think Paul is talking about in verse 12. Working out your salvation can be solidarity with others. Being alongside others, especially others who are in a tough situation. Paul says to do it with fear and trembling. I like to to understand that as respect and humility. And I think he's capitalizing, this is really important. That you work out your mindset of Christ in the world with others through your body like this is what it means to live out the Christian life, having that same mindset that Christ has. Uh, Zacchaeus was a person that Jesus had lunch with, and out of that lunch meeting, uh, he was so inspired by Jesus. He's like, all right, anyone I'm ch- I've cheated, which he had, I'm going to quadruple what I've taken from you, and then I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this household. It's it's like this working out of our relationships in a way, this reordering of relationships. That's the mindset of Christ that I think Zacchaeus had that prompted Jesus to say, salvation's come to this household because his relationship to his money Uh, took a backseat to his doing right in in the world with the people that he had cheated. Let's read on. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God who works in you 
to want and to act out of that desire his good purpose. I, um, for a while, really, really didn't like exercising. I was telling my house group, like, I just don't care for it. Um, and I fell prey to a scheme uh, from a uh, gym fitness thing that's like, hey, join for six weeks, and if you achieve this goal, you'll get your money back. Um, and so I'm ashamed to say money was the motivator for like, I'm going to get my money back. I'm going to work really hard to sort of achieve this goal that they set. Um, it, it's, you know, that knife hanging over my wallet by a thread that motivated me, not because I wanted to, you know, I wasn't motivated as primarily because of the exercise. I was motivated, sadly, because of the money. Poverty mindset, all that stuff, you know, yes, I'm working on that. But man, I worked hard. Uh, for six weeks, there were four very intense workouts a week and a strict um, monitoring of everything I put in my body. So like I was reading labels and I was saying, no, you know, when there are donuts in the office, it's really our scones in the back of the church. Like that's where the metal is tested in you. I said no to those things because I had that knife hanging over my wallet. I want to get that money back. Anyway, I lost the bet. Uh, but what I found, what's that? Um, no. It was, uh, there's these machines that measure your percent body fat. And so it was like I'm 25% body fat. I will not, I will not eat hamburger that's 25%. How should I? Why should I allow that inside my body when I won't even buy hamburger that's 25% fat? So anyway, my percent body fat did not really change. I think at a certain age you're just stuck with that percentage. <laughs> anyway, I did feel a little duped. What it did do, however. I crave exercise. It's like, ah, I just feel antsy. I need to do something. It created this uh, kind of posture in me or this desire in me, this will to want exercise. I think this, this obedience to God's call to take on the mindset of Christ in time, you start wanting that thing. Uh, our natural posture, I don't think, is toward uh, humility. I think our natural posture is toward uh, exclusion and selfishness. I found in six weeks I could develop a desire to exercise. I have never had that before. I've never wanted exercise. I want it now because I did it for six weeks for all the wrong reasons. And now I've got that desire. And I wonder if we take on this mindset, if we can develop that desire to do good to others, that desire to see ourselves 
in relation to others and to serve others above ourselves, that working out our salvation in that way, in relationship to others, can allow us to will and to want God's good purposes. Not because we have to, not because we're doing it out of obligation, but we start to want that sort of thing. We've we've changed our posture. Let's read on. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Okay, it's Father's Day, and I can't help that this took me back to those long drives to Florida with the kids in the back seat of the 1987 Ford Taurus with a broken air conditioner. (laughs) Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Those of you who have been on long drives with kids or have been that kid on the long drive. I'm not sure exactly that that's what uh, Paul has in mind here as he's inviting them to... um, to do everything without grumbling or complaining, but do everything without grumbling and complaining. I got to believe he's talking about the hard stuff. Like when junk happens, do everything without grumbling and complaining. It's that journey of life when the AC is broken and you're tired. I've been a Christian now 40 years. I feel that long journey sometimes and feel that temptation to be like, oh man, it's just so I'm tired of trying to follow Jesus. It's so hard at times. And so that long, hot journey, do everything without grumbling or complaining. I've I've got this natural... Um, slumped shoulders like a bad posture i've got bad posture some of it probably genetic some of it maybe because as a kid i was teased a lot picked on had a poor self-image and maybe that's expressed itself in my slumped shoulders but i'm becoming conscious of oh especially if it's pointed out or i see it in a mirror like oh then i change my posture I think we've got a natural posture toward grumbling and complaining. I think that's our uh, osteoporosis of the spirit, sort of, you know, this kind of natural inclination just to have rounded shoulders in our grumbling and complaining. That's what comes naturally. I do know that when you become conscious of your bad posture, spiritual posture, It's like, oh, you can correct that. I can choose to hold my grumbling tongue and instead speak blessing instead of speaking grumbling. When you see it, maybe when a mirror is held up to you by someone like, that feels like the grumbling and complaining that Paul was talking about and that Scott talked about. Have you got a little bit of ash in your eye that you need to flush out? When you see it, you can correct it. There is that ability to change your posture, to sit up straight, to release blessing. Um, Does that mean you should never 
call out stuff that's wrong. No, I don't think so. But I, I think it's a posture. I'm not so sure it's sort of what you say, it's what's in the heart when it is said. Um, there's a difference between looking at what ought to be in the world and feeling grief instead of grumbling. Grief is different than grumbling. Grief is this sort of lament at how things are. I don't think it's the same as grumbling. Grumbling is this sort of inward sourness that spills out of us rather than holding grief or lament. Uh, Grief or lament maybe even allows you to see, oh, there's some wounds here out of which this action is occurring. Um, And so you're able to hold that grief without it coming out as grumbling at, and I'm guilty of this, the church. Or, you know, I think we we all have that temptation to complain. And and it's possible to hold grief without embracing grumbling. I'm not sure how exactly to explain it. I think probably each of us works that out differently. Someone gave me a quote this week from uh, a plaque that they saw at um, Mount Rushmore from a Chief Joseph, whom I don't know what Chief Joseph is, who he is, 1881. Here's what Chief Joseph says and is memorialized in a plaque. Hopefully you won't consider this a form of grumbling. They will teach us to quarrel about God, as Catholics and Protestants do. We do not want to do that. We may quarrel with men sometimes about things on earth, but we never quarrel about the great spirit. We do not want to learn that. Anyway, grumbling, complaining, I think, is um, is the opposite of this mindset that we're called to in that first part of chapter 2 that Paul is like, put that Put that mindset on you. Have that posture. Let's read on verse 16, 15, 16. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God. I like that children of God, you know, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will become children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Janine and I were talking about, is the world worse than when we were younger? Sometimes feels like it. I don't, I think it was a warped and crooked generation when Paul lived. And, you know, we see such a tiny fragment of the world in a tiny slice of time on a very small spot on the planet. Looking at all of history, I'm not sure that it's worse it feels worse particularly as you gain a sense of what ought to be but Paul's inviting us to this posture posture of blessing posture of seeing the world differently than your natural inclination posture of having the mindset of Christ and in contrast to a wicked depraved generation it is that 
tiny speck of light in a dark sky that is noticeable. It's not very noticeable uh, in a lot of ways. You become a grumbling and complaining person in a sea of grumble and complaint. It's that blessing person, that person who, like Carl, sees the bright side, is able to speak blessing. That stands out in a wicked and crooked and depraved generation, not the person who sees only the bad stuff in the world. This all settles into that have the same mind that Jesus had in you. He goes on, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. The word of life is the good news. It's this life that it's God has made a way to redeem all things. I like to talk about the gospel as peace with God, peace with others, peace with yourself, and peace with the land. All of those show up in, uh, in various ways as we talk about shalom, completeness. God has made a way for peace with God, with others, with yourself, and with the world. That's the word of life. You hold firmly to this good news, this word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. I think Paul is is playing the dad card here, um, drawing on their sort of fatherly affection for him. He took on this servanthood role and like he he poured himself out for the Philippians. And he's saying, I want to be able to boast and I don't want that boasting to be in vain. Uh, it will be in vain if I don't see this working out of your salvation in the mindset of Christ and this posture of kindness. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. My labor will not be in vain when I see the sacrifice and service coming out of you. By now the honeymoon is over and Paul's talking to the Philippian jailer to Lydia, to the slave girl. We looked at that when we started the book of Philippians. And probably by now, the glory of being in a new set of relationships in Lydia's household and the jailer's household and the church in Philippi is growing. No doubt there's persecution coming as well. But Paul sees their faith producing this service and this sacrifice, and that's what makes him glad. It will be nullified if their posture changes. This idea of being a complaining, grumbling uh, person who just sees the bad in people. So you too should be glad and rejoice with us. Despite living in a grumbling, complaining, crooked, depraved generation, despite 
the animosity of the world toward the Philippians and in Philippi, I'm sure there was plenty of animosity. You're working out your salvation, having the mind of Christ in humility and becoming like him, and that ought to produce joy. So this short section is a continuation of that great hymn that happens right above it, inviting us to work out our salvation in relationship to others, considering others over ourselves, not lording it over others, removing from ourselves grumbling. You may still experience grief over the world, over yourself. It's not the same as grumbling and complaining. How to step into that mindset of Christ, considering others, rejoicing, speaking blessing instead of grumbling. That's the challenge of what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to become like Christ in our mind and in our posture, our life, our service. I'm going to pray over us, and then um, Susan and Doug have some announcements, and we'll go offline, and there'll be another announcement after that. But let me pray for us. Lord, at times I feel like I've got that bit of ash from the book of the devil on all the things that are wrong with the world in my eye. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for accepting that, allowing that, even fostering that view of the world and sometimes of myself. Lord, out of our sorrow for seeing things sometimes in ways that are not like having the mind of Christ, would you forgive us and flush that bit of, that speck out of our eye that distorts the world. Help us to see things as you see them. Give us holy grief without grumbling. And show us what it means to be joyful always in everything that happens. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.